You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing today, Michael? It's a fantastic day. Hey, Dan, I know you taught government. Yeah. How did you deal with um, political disclosure? You know, I, I'll tell you, early in my career, I wasn't really sure what to do. But you can't really get around it. If you're talking about politics every day, unless you're, you're you know, an incredible actor, I feel like your students are going to pick up on some of your beliefs and a little bit of who you are. But... Um, I don't know. I just, I just tried to be authentic and accepting of students, but I'm sure um, there's better ways to do it. I know with the election season coming up, a lot of teachers are trying to figure out, you know, how they can bring politics into the classroom, bring the election into the classroom. But I hear we actually have a great guest who's going to talk just about that. Yeah. Welcome, Wayne. Hey, good to be here. So this is uh, Wayne Jurnell. And Wayne, can you tell us just a little bit about um, your background in education and what you're doing? Sure. Right now, I'm an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, but to go a little bit farther back, I was a high school teacher for five years in Roanoke, Virginia. And then I ended up at the University of Illinois for my doctorate. And I did that in uh, secondary social studies education. Um, and I've spent the last seven years, uh, going on eight here at, at UNC Greensboro, uh, where I spend uh, most of my time teaching um secondary social studies methods, middle school social studies methods, graduate courses in social studies education, and doctoral courses as well. My research focus, as Dan already alluded to, is um, in the civic education broadly, but mainly in the teaching of controversial issues, political issues, and political processes in K-12 education. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background in teaching and and what it was like and what subjects you taught and just more details? Yeah, I taught in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, I went to undergrad at James Madison University. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, so I went back home to teach. And uh, I taught at a, you know, I always like to describe it as an average high school. It wasn't the best of the best, and it wasn't the worst of the worst. It was just your run-of-the-mill high school. And I taught um, pretty much every social studies they had in the building. I taught world history, uh, didn't teach geography, but I taught geography in my uh, student teaching placement, Um, U.S. history and government. And, And we had what was called dual enrollment government, which was more of uh, kind of like AP, but we didn't. It was better than AP because students got college credit for it automatically if they got a certain grade. By the end of my career uh, teaching K twelve, I was teaching mainly um, government and U.S. history. One thing I think a lot of people don't understand about teaching social studies is, you know, I've heard people say, just take more history courses and you'll be prepared. And I was like, year two, I was teaching psychology, and in like week three and four of the course, I was teaching about the biological basis, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of the human body. And I was like, oh, this is, I was not prepared. So there's just a lot of content learning that you're almost going to have to do no matter what. And a lot of people don't understand that. Well, and if you look at um, teacher education programs broadly in the United States, social studies teacher education programs, they tend to be very history focused. And so, you know, I've get, you know, 95% of my students are history majors, but yet they get placed in civics classrooms or economics classrooms. And it, it involves a whole different pedagogical content knowledge in order to be able to teach those and teach those well. You have to know your stuff. I know for me, I had to take like two economics courses, two geography courses, and then I was certified to teach that subject, which 
<laughs> it was still very difficult. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's basically what it is. It's like here. We do a really good job preparing them. Uh, we work really well with our history department, preparing them to teach history. And they know their history, they, and they do a, a really good job about teaching primary sources and things like that. But when it comes to teaching, you know, civics and, and getting in, involved with current events and stuff, they struggle with it because they've never really had to do it. Um, economics is the big one, too. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. That's that's the bugaboo for a lot of, uh, of uh, the my teachers anyway. Um, and I'll be honest uh, to disclose, I, I wasn't a huge fan of teaching economics either. Um, but I had to, you know, in, in conjunction with, with government. But Yeah, that was one of those classes in college I took at the community college because I didn't, I heard horror stories about taking the tough economics <laughs> classes at OU. <laughs> and so I would have felt very unprepared and I never did teach it for some reason. And I don't know if it's across the whole state of Oklahoma, but a lot of schools had sociology <laughs> and not economics. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. Can, Wayne, can you tell us a little bit about, um, I know your the big idea you're going to talk about today is political disclosure, which is very mm -hmm. relevant. Um, as elections are coming up, can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done in that area? Sure. I've done several studies. Uh, my, my dissertation study, which I consider kind of like the baseline study, was on the 2008 election, which was interesting at the time because I figured, you know, elections are part of social studies. I mean, it's like the, the quintessential social studies topic, right? Oh, Where yeah. Can, it's like the Super Bowl. You would think, right? But if you look at the literature uh, out there, there hadn't been hardly anything done as far as studying how teachers teach elections. There was a lot of theoretical stuff about how they should, but then there wasn't much empirical work about you know uh, what they actually do in practice. So I actually got pretty lucky with 2008. You know, when I did my dissertation proposal, I didn't know who the candidates were going to be. <laughs> you know? So you have to do that fairly early in the process. So I knew I was going to find something hopefully interesting about teaching the presidential election. But then, you know, when Obama became the nom Democratic nominee and you got Sarah Palin on the Republican side, it opened up a whole different, uh, you know, layers of complexity there, which turned out to be a very interesting study and, and a fruitful study. I've got a lot out of it. Um, but I, you know, I, one of the aspects I looked at in that you know, study is how did the teachers broach what was a very contested election? It was a historic election, and I looked at uh, six teachers across three different schools, and the and the schools were very different as well. One was a very uh, a very large school in a very urban district, you know, low socioeconomic neighborhoods that fed into the school, uh, high minority population, um, and largely Democratic. I mean, almost. 99% in favor of Obama. The second school was a rural school within the same district, but almost completely night and day different. Small school, predominantly white, middle class, lower lower middle class uh, school. And it was about 50-50 um, as far as Democrat versus Republican. Um, and then a private Catholic school which was located about five uh, miles away from the large urban school that was very much in favor of Obama. The student body in that school was about half and half liberal conservative, but the administration was very conservative. You know, they were big on, you know, supporting the socially conservative religious aspect of the school. So all of that played into, into the, the aspect of whether the teachers disclosed their opinions, and if so, how did they do it? Of the six teachers, only two disclosed uh, their voting preference in the election. The other four did not. Um, and then... Several years after that, I did another study on the 2012 election, and again, different context. One school was a very rural, you know, conservative school. The other uh, school was one, one of the uh, few liberal districts in the state, and uh, I also looked at disclosure there. So I've looked at it in a variety of contexts. So when they um, disclosed, I guess one thing I think of is, is there's got to be a difference between simply disclosing your political beliefs and how you right, do it. Right, right, definitely. And so what did you find there? So to give a little 
little research background. You know, there's people have been, have talked about this before. Uh, Thomas Kelly, way back in the the 1980s, wrote a a good piece in Theory and Research and Social Education, talking about the four um, aspects of, of teacher disclosure. The first one was he called something. No one ever does this one, so I can never remember the uh, the, the name <laughs> of it. But it's like neutral partiality. Basically, that's just the idea of you just get you know don't bring it up at all, which is not good right i mean there's it's almost impossible because even if you come into the classroom saying well i don't want to talk about this the minute a student raises their hand and says who are you going to vote for or you know what do you think about this you're going to have to address it somehow and then you you get down to the 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 uh the main ones are exclusive partiality which is basically this is what i believe it's right and this is what you should and you should believe it as well or mm-hmm. what i think is probably the best one what i advocate is committed impartiality which is um I say what I I disclose what I believe, but I also tell my students that it's just my opinion, and my opinion is no better than theirs, and their opinions are just as valid, and we'd like to talk about it. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I went into a theoretical argument. Yeah. No, it was actually a really good. It was a good answer. So I'm going to be honest with you. My students don't know which party I belong to. Have uh, you ever asked them? They think different things. Some of them think I'm very conservative, or moderately conservative. Others think I'm liberal. Um. Because I don't, and maybe it's just me, my teaching, but I just, I just have this thing about telling kids like what my view is because I don't want them to say, hey, there's a liberal teacher. I just want to push them in their thinking. So I often play the devil's advocate uh, in discussions. And so I don't really, I don't know. I just think I have a hard time with this. And I know where you're coming from, Michael, because what I always worried about is now, first thing I'll, I'll say, students often can be very refreshing to talk politics with because they often are not so ideologically committed, you know, that they are unwilling to listen to others' ideas. In fact, I found students during the 2008 election, I was incredibly frustrated talking to many adults about it. And I loved talking in class because my students were open-minded and thoughtful and they wanted to know more. And so we would investigate it. But I did always worry about... Um, kind of as we were we were trying to discuss, you know, political identities, if they did have a strong feeling, some students and some people just really have trouble taking you out of that box once you're in it. You know, I mean, once they label you as something, there's almost nothing you can do. You can talk about working through it, but they just see you as being that and labels can become so powerful. I don't know. How do you deal with that kind of stuff? And maybe you maybe you can't. Maybe you just have to live with it. Well, to combine what both of you were saying, it's, it's interesting because you both kind of hit on the main things that I found with teachers as far as why they don't disclose, right? Either I don't want, I, you know, I don't want to indoctrinate them. I don't want my students to necessarily believe what I believe because I'm the social studies teacher. Or I don't want to alienate my students because they may see me in a certain light, right? Um, but going back to Michael's comment about how some of his students think he's conservative and some of them think he's liberal, they've labeled him one way or the other. Now the the thing is I don't know what your political preferences are but at least half of them are, are incorrect right you know you're either a liberal or a conservative well, I guess you could be a moderate somewhere down the middle and that's and that that's the point that I that I've tried to make in my research is neutrality might be a noble goal but yeah. it's not it's not a realistic one there's no such thing as a neutral classroom try as we might even with the devil's advocate aspects and stuff you can be the devil's devil's advocate and also disclose but i I think that the issue that we come into is that teachers think that they're being neutral when i'm sitting in the back of the classroom observing and i'm seeing a lot of things that they're doing that they're they're not being neutral and i think dan and i were talking about this before the podcast if you look at how what i choose to teach 
like there's definitely a bias within what I choose. And so if you do pay attention, you'll probably figure out what I emphasize because yeah, it is all over me. And so maybe I should not all over me, but it's definitely what I choose to emphasize. <laughs> uh, maybe I should, maybe, you know, disclosing my, um, my political affiliation beforehand or disclose my biases, disclose my biases. So they know like, this is where I'm kind of coming from. Uh, this is what I'm going to be emphasizing in this class. No, I, I agree 100% that, and to me, the argument is that provides context for students. And I think the thing that teachers have to understand is their students are not, for the most part, not politically savvy, right? So what I might sit in the back of your classroom and pick up on, they might not. And so the, the analogy that I like to use is if, you know, me, I consider myself fairly politically savvy, right? I go turn on the television. If I turn on Fox News or I turn on MSNBC, I know to take whatever's being said on those networks with a grain of salt because there is a certain ideological spin there, right? Mm -hmm. But if you take someone who's uninformed about politics in general and you turn them on Fox News or MSNBC, they're going to take what's being said as the truth because they don't know any different. And the same thing happens with classrooms. When I would do uh, interviews with students uh, in these teachers' classes or give surveys to these students that are in the teachers' classes, a lot of them came in the ones in the classrooms where they didn't disclose. A lot of the students were like yours, Michael, where they were like all over the place about, well, I know he's for Obama because, and sometimes they would, and it's usually based on stereotypes. You know, he's African American or, you know, he's a middle class teacher. They all vote for Democrat. And a lot of times they were wrong, you know, or, you know, he's, they're for Romney because he's white, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but in the disclosure classrooms, those students got to be able to put, you know, some sort of context with their teachers. And to a student that I interviewed, they loved it. You know, they loved knowing where their teacher stood mm -hmm. um, because it did give them that context. Even when the teacher was not practicing committed impartiality, they were practicing that exclusive partiality by saying Republicans are stupid or Democrats are stupid or whatever. I'd have students who disagreed, but they said, I loved knowing where the teacher came from. And I remember one quote from the 2008 study that sticks in my mind. It was uh, a very open – a teacher who was very openly for, for Obama and very anti-Republican. And one of the more conservative students that I interviewed said, you know what? Mr. Leander actually made me more of a Republican <laughs> <laughs> because I loved listening to what he said, and I, and I, and I, I knew it was you know, just his opinion. So I tried to find things to counteract that opinion. But if students are not politically savvy and they're in, you know, in those classrooms and they don't pick up on that stuff, they just take whatever those biases are in those classrooms as truth. And I think that's dangerous because you know, the problem with teacher disclosure is what's going on in the public realm. You know, when we catch teachers and they get uploaded to YouTube and you know, they get on cable news and they're doing stupid things like telling students that they're wrong or they're going to go to hell for voting for <laughs> you know, wherever. And the problem is, yes, that's bad. You know, that's, that's a wrong type of disclosure. The problem is within the, you know, when it gets on cable news or YouTube, the focus tends to be more on who they're endorsing rather than how they're doing it. And the fact that they're disclosing that they support a certain candidate to me is not an issue. The issue is that they're doing it in, in an intolerant way, and they're not modeling tolerant civil discourse. Uh, but, and I think that's the other aspect about disclosure that's so important to me, and it was for Thomas Kelly too, that the whole committed impartiality part, is if students don't see tolerant disclosure at school, where are they going to mm -hmm. see it? 
They're not right. seeing it on cable news. They're not seeing it on social media. They're not seeing it on the comment section of any political article on the internet. Um, and 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 honestly, they're probably not seeing it a lot at their dinner tables at night. Um, so, you know, I think it's important for students to be able to see one that teachers, an adult role model in their lives, have political opinions, and two that they're able to, you know, say their political opinions, but also defer to other rational opinions as equally legitimate and have a tolerant discussion because that just doesn't happen that often. And I think, you know, this idea of objectivity in the social studies classroom is something we just have to get over. Um, You know, uh, I'm Sean McCusker. He was the former, one of our former SS chat co-leaders. I remember one time him saying, because I think I did always try to look for clips that were more Initially in my career when I was teaching government, look for clips that were more neutral, that kind of presented the news. And there's some of that out there. But what are the skills they really need is they need really need to be able to delve in to the biases that exist, which are inherent in everything. Every show and commentator mm-hmm. has some kind of bias in the way they present it and not see it as necessarily just biases, but just perspectives. Um, of course, some of these perspectives, and especially in politics, are laden with all kinds of other interests that are being unstated, and it's important for students to be able to understand that. But it's the exact same th- you know, policy we need to have when we use textbooks in our class. We shouldn't use textbooks like they're these neutral, objective sources of information. They're politically constructed you know, um, documents and, and, and books that we should have students analyzing, critiquing. Who wrote this book? Why did they write it? What kind of political pressures were on them? They need to consider that because those are the skills they need to operate in a democratic society where there's a lot of perspectives, a lot of biases that influence the things that happen. So as a, uh, as a teacher who never wants to be uploaded to YouTube or on cable <laughs> news, for, uh, we have the election season coming up. What advice would you give to teachers uh, dealing with the election? Yeah, I mean, this election's unique in a lot of different <laughs> different ways. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's it, more than ever, it's important for teachers to model that, uh, you know, that civil, you know, tolerant discourse in their classrooms, because even the politicians themselves haven't been modeling that in this election season. I mean, you know, you hate to say it, but when, you know, you look, turn on like the GOP uh, primary debates and people are name calling and they're referencing their parts of their anatomy, <laughs> that's not where, you know, we want to be as far as tolerant civil discourse, right? And I'm not willing to to yet say that that's where we are as a, as a nation. I'm I'm hoping that, you know, we can evolve past that, but it involves some training. You know, kind of like uh for you know Sam Weinberg's work on history as it's an unnatural act. Well, it's an unnatural act to be able to say that my opinions might be somewhat fallible, and I'd like to hear from someone who believes differently. Um, and I, but I think when when you are able to do that in the classroom, students not only you know become better informed about their opinions. They also see the other side. And I think that's important because uh, we don't see a lot of that. I think cable news has has done a lot of disservice to uh, the country on both sides because. And, you know, 60 years ago, you know, we should have been less informed than we are now because it was really only Walter Cronkite on TV, right? Now, I would argue, even with all the, the, the stuff we have online and all the different cable news networks, we're probably less informed than we were 60 years ago because everybody just adheres to the one narrative that they believe, and then they just reinforce and it trumps up and people go crazy. So it is day one of uh, my classroom in, or your classroom in 2016. You are my teacher. Disclose. How would, so how would this work? Well, I don't know if you have to do it on day one, but um, I would, you know, frame it as, uh, especially on election year, I would, 
first, first, let me back up. If it's an election year, you should be teaching about the election, especially in a civics class or a government class, but really any social studies class. You should be teaching about the election um, throughout the semester. One of the findings that I found in 2008 that was somewhat disturbing is that there were a couple teachers. No, I mean, think about this historical election. They only taught about it for about two to three weeks within their political party unit. I mean, talk about a, a missed pedagogical experience. So I would you know, frame it on the, in the first couple of days of school as saying, we've got this unique experience here to talk about presidential election. I mean, this is you know, what, we, what we strive for in a civics class. And we're going to be you know, looking at different candidates. We're gonna, you know, I would want to kind of know where my students you know, fell as, uh, you know, as far as who they were thinking about supporting, keeping in mind that you know, we're going to get a better understanding about it um, from here until November. But then I always make the tell my students, never ask your students to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. So if you ask your students to take one of those liberal conservative surveys or, you know, ask them what candidate they support, you do it the same way, you know, and show them that you have an opinion as well. Um, but I, I think the key is you make it very clear that this is my opinion. It's subject to change based on evidence, as, as all of our opinions should be. Um, but I would never try to insinuate that you have to believe the same thing as me, and we're going to just have a good conversation um, with it throughout the course of the, uh, the year. And I think you know, that modeling of how to really show respect towards all students, especially a student that, that has a different opinion and people know it, is, can be such a valuable lesson. And you don't even have to explicitly say that. You can just do it. And so I think all of the and, you know, there's so many new things we're dealing with today from um, the way we get information, like you mentioned, where everybody used to get it from Walter Cronkite or just a few networks to today where content is is tailored to your interests and your belief systems. And I saw a really interesting uh, tweet the other day from um, Zainab Tufeki, I think is her name, and she does a lot on social media. And she watched a Trump video just to kind of do some research. And then immediately she started, like, uh, in the videos that it suggested for her after and her feeds started suggesting that she look at all of these thing, you know, um, specific political uh, uh, speeches and other things that tailored right to that Trump speech, the same type of stuff. And so we can be exposed to such a li limited you know, um, a set of perspectives because of the way we get information from social media and other things. So this is even more relevant mm -hmm. for doing it in the social studies classroom. Isn't it interesting that like, if I have a particular viewpoint, I can really just hear that viewpoint by the, you know, by the recommendations, by the channels I watch. And that can never be challenged if I'm just choosing, you know, where I'm getting my news from. And I feel like it's a good, yeah, I feel, I really like your, your idea of creating this open forum in your classroom where you can discuss these different divergent ideas and you can use evidence to kind of inform your decision. Um, so I think that's a really great angle to deal with the, or to use the election. Yeah. And, and by encouraging multiple perspectives, you're allowing those students who might be in the ideological minority to feel like it's a safe space, especially once you as the teacher acknowledge that their, their beliefs are rational as well. One of the other things that I found in my research is um, something that's uh, been written about in political science and communication studies extensively. It's called the spiral of silence, um, and it occurs in schools as well, especially with this idea of political discourse. And basically, the spiral of silence uh, states that people – are less likely to share their opinions if they feel like they are in a hostile environment. And so considering how, you know, school districts are so gerrymandered these days, you know, it's likely you're going to be in a school where it's 80% 
liberal or 80% conservative. And for those people who are in that minority, they tend to just shut up. And, and so, it, you know, Diana Hess has done some research that if you don't unpack that ideological diversity that's in your classroom, instead of productive conversations, you get stereotypical discourse where you're just railing on the other side and, and you know, falling back to stereotypes and things like that without getting into real policy discussions. So you need to have both uh, sides. And I think if the teacher can disclose, it's really effective if the teacher can disclose his or her opinions and they're different from that of the, the majority of the student body. But even if the, the teacher is aligned with the, that of the student body, if they can show that how they can you know, tolerantly defer to other positions when appropriate, I think it speaks volumes. Listen, uh, Wayne, thank you so much for, for chatting with us today. I feel like I have a, a good idea of where I'm going to go next year. Okay, good. Great. So, Wayne, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, if you Google me, uh, you'll find my uh, uh, website from UNCG, and a lot of my research is posted there if you wanted to see it. I'm also on ResearchGate. I'm also on um, Facebook. Uh, just Again, search my name, but also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is uh, UNCG. SOC studies. <laughs> uh, UNC studies. And we'll get links to all of that on our show notes on our site. So we'll make sure to get that from you. So again, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we definitely hope to continue the discussion in civil ways. That's right. On, <laughs> online and in other spaces. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you write us a five-star review, then we'll read it on the air. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off.